So Acts chapter 3, let me read this chapter and then we'll, we'll dig into it. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our power and or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we're witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many have spoken, have foretold these days, and you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Jesus can change your life. I realize in saying that sentence, there is a high probability that that sentence could go in one ear and out the other ear, because we have been told constantly that so many things would change our lives. It's just kind of a marketing trope that we hear these days. You got to get this app. 
It's going to change your life. This nutritional supplement, that gadget, this workout program, this book, you know, this approach will change your life. And, and we, being some of the most marketed to people in the history of humanity, we, we're the most savvy, jaded, discerning people. We, we can cut through all that. And we hear lines like that, and, and we instantly go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But even we, who um, can see through marketing gimmicks at times and, and through oversold promises, even we, I think, still long for something to change our lives because we live in a sinful and broken world. I think that's why every once in a while we break down and try the app or the book or the supplement, and then it doesn't work. And we're like, I knew that wouldn't work, even though I spent 19.99. But I'm here to proclaim to you this morning and to tell you from God's word that Jesus Christ can change your life. Because he is the author of life. Jesus Christ is the Lord. And he changes lives. That's what this whole passage is about. That's the, kind of the main point of chapter 3. Is It's all about the, the glory and the authority of Jesus and his name. And how in his name lives are changed. The story breaks down into two parts. There's verses 1 to 10. Which tell the, the story of the healing of this man who can't walk, his life has changed. And then it's followed by a sermon in verses 11 to 26 where Peter takes it, the apostle Peter takes advantage of this healing to then tell people that Jesus can change their lives too. So, so there's a miracle, and then that miracle sets up a message from Peter. But the point in both is the same. Jesus changes lives. And he does it through a miracle, and he does it through this message. So let's just look at each of them in turn. First with the miracle, where we see Jesus changes the life of this particular uh, disabled person who is begging for his living. So here we are, verses 1 and 2. We're at the temple courts. We're in Jerusalem. The temple courts were a huge area, about two football fields long by two football fields long. It was a ma- it's a massive space in Herod's temple the second temple in Jerusalem. And, and there are the Jews at three in the afternoon, the, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They're coming for regular prayer, the afternoon prayer time. And there's this guy, verse two, crippled from birth, being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those who were going into the temple courts. This is the man's life. He is carried to the gate. He begs. He goes home. This is his existence. From birth, he's not been able to walk, which you can imagine in an agrarian society would mean you don't really have a lot of options. It's, it's not like, I mean, it's, it's hard and difficult to be disabled, but especially, you know, today at least there's, there's tools and, and helps and there's a, a bit more of a cultural awareness relative to how it was back then. But here's what this man had. He was picked up and carried and he went to his place. It was by the temple gate. He went there every day. He had his spot. That was his spot by the temple. Everyone knew him. And he was there so often that it was almost as if he was part of the temple fixtures. You know, there's the altar, and there's the gate, and there's the guy who begs right there, and there's this, and it was his place. Some of you know this man. He's in Boston. He's always by the red line. He's always tucked in next to a building out of the wind. It's his spot you recognize him. He has this Dunkin' Donuts cup or whatever, and, 
and, and he's, he's there. Maybe he does have some physical uh, disability that makes him unable to do anything. Maybe, um, maybe there's a, a mental or emotional problem that makes him un, incapable of sort of functioning normally in society. Maybe he has destroyed his own life, disabled himself through his own sin. Who knows? But he sits there every day. Some days you see him, some days you don't, because it's just become part of the terrain. And it's here that Peter, by the God's power, by the name of Jesus, performs this miracle. It's, it's, a, it's a miracle. That's all there is to it. Uh, and, and I find this story of this miracle so moving. That as, I, as I read it and I studied it, I found myself being emotionally impacted by this miracle. There's so much that's touching and heartwarming about it. I'm moved by the compassion of Peter and John. There's so much compassion. You know, they, they stop and they, you know, he's looking for money and, you know, alms and, and looking for the charity and generosity of others. And Peter and John, you know, they stop and they see him. They look at him. They don't just kind of give him a coin, but they, they look at him and, and he looks at them and, and they're just staring at him. They take time to recognize his presence there's compassion and, and generosity in that action. And then I'm moved by the words that they say to him, verse 6. Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Look, buddy, we, we're broke too, you know. Being an apostle, not paying a lot. We don't have silver and gold, but we have something. We have the name of Jesus. That's really encouraging to know as we go out there and try to engage in the world, as we're trying to engage people with the gospel, as we're trying to talk about the Lord, as you sort of intentionally step across the boundaries and get into other people's lives and allow yourself to stop and see someone, um, you know, you're going to bump into needs. You're going to bump into people with situations that are overwhelming. You're going to encounter people with struggles that go way beyond your ability to fix. You may not have what they need, but we always have the name of Jesus. We always have the gospel. That's the most important thing. And so I love that. We, in the name of Jesus, they have Jesus' name. And of course, these apostles have particularly been granted power to heal in Jesus' name. And so they say, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And then I, I'm moved and I'm, I'm affected by the miracle itself. You know, Peter extends his hand and takes this man by the hand. If I was filming this as a movie, you know, there's that moment where Peter puts his hand out, and you could just imagine this, this guy in the ground, like, you know, some guy just told him to walk. It's like, okay, and you could just see that hand reaching up. Okay. That, that little gesture of faith, and then seized by Peter's hand, and suddenly God, however God heals, I have no idea, but God, by his power, heals. And, and I'm moved by the, the reaction of the man. You know, verse 8. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. You know. Excuse me, sir. These are the temple courts. Please stay quiet. We, we, you know, this is respectful. We need to be respectful of God here. This is a respectful, quiet place. Keep it under control. Please keep your praise to 50 decibels or less. And he's pogoing around and he's screaming and jumping and everyone's like, rawr, rawr. you know, that issue doesn't happen here in the temple. And then they see, you know, who's pogoing and they're like, well, 
that can't be beautiful gate guy, you know? Is, is that the guy with the Dunkin' Donuts cup by the beautiful gate? Is that him? And so this crowd is gathered. It, it's so awesome. It makes me think of the story when, when Jesus was having dinner and, and that woman came in to him and, and she was acting inappropriately. She was weeping and her tears were falling on Jesus' feet and she was using her hair to dry his te- uh, her tears on his feet and all the dinner guests were like, awkward, this shouldn't be happening. But Jesus says, she loves much because she's been forgiven much. You know, when, when God does a great work in your life, it's tough to just kind of stay chill. I mean, I mean if, if some of you here, some of you here have some maybe physical disabilities, you have um, maybe some arthritis, maybe you are disabled in some way, your body doesn't work right, maybe you have some disease that, that you struggle with. Imagine if, if, you know, the power of God healed you like that. You might be jumping and leaping and praising God. Or for, for us who struggle perhaps with, with some kind of emotional weight or mental weight and, and, and it just kind of weighs down on us, you know, depression or discouragement or mental illness and, and we try our best, but it's, it's always a burden we're fighting. Imagine it were to be lifted in a moment. We would be jumping and leaping and praising God. And so I think, brothers and sisters, we need to pray boldly for people when, when we have opportunity and people are struggling, we need to be more bold, more gutsy in our prayers. We need to pray that God will do something dramatic. We need to pray for healing. We need to pray for God to reverse difficult circumstances. When some, someone comes to us hurting and broken, you know, we, we not only need to pray for God to encourage that person, yes, and to, to grow them in, in Christ's likeness, definitely, but let's also pray for God to, to intervene and, and to, to save we need to pray more boldly for those things because we believe that Jesus can change lives. And, and, and even if we don't have a, a gift of working wonders, we can pray and God answers prayer. So I think we need to be more bold in praying that way. Maybe that then makes you wonder, well, 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 well what about if God doesn't answer that prayer? <laughs> you know, what about if he doesn't heal the person? What if he, he doesn't uh, remove the crushing life circumstances? You know, what, what about then, you know? Because hey, maybe you have prayed. Maybe there's something you're wrestling with. You've prayed for God to take it away. What, what do we do with the fact that sometimes God does not seem to answer prayers? Well, that's a, that's a whole sermon series <laughs> unto itself. And I suspect you've already thought about that some. You probably could share your own thoughts on that from your own study of the Bible, your own life experiences. We know that sometimes God does answer prayers, and that sometimes he does not answer prayers, but that he has purposes in the not answering. He has, he has further things that he's doing. We know that his greatest goal is to build our faith in Christ more than to fix our problems, and sometimes God puts us in the crucible of suffering for extended periods to, to shape us and purify us and deepen God's work in our lives. We know these things, and, and we could probably share those with each other, what God does through unanswered prayer. But I'd like to stay with the story rather than speculating and, and look again at this story because here was a story where God did heal, where God did perform a miracle, where Jesus changed someone's life. This man's life is now changed. He's entering a whole mode of life that he's only seen from the ground, and now he's entered into it. And so this, this miracle then sets up the message. 
this uh, sign sets up is the springboard for the sermon, as often happens in the Gospels, in, in uh, the, the Gospels of Jesus. Jesus will do miracles, but one of the main reasons for the miracles is to give legitimacy to the message. He's coming and telling people, I'm the Son of God, believe in me. Like, well, how, how do I know you're the Son of God? Why should we believe in you? Well, look at the miracles. So the miracles point to the message and the messenger and to, to Christ. And so that's what Peter does here. He, he is, uh, he's an opportunist. A miracle has happened. Verse 11, the people come running. Is that the beggar guy? He's, what? What is going on? And they're running, and he's screaming and yelling, and it's this whole disruptive moment in the middle of uh, appropriate worship, and, and this whole thing is happening. And so Peter takes advantage of it. He says, verse 12, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you look at us as if by our power or godliness we've made this man walk? I'll tell you, by the way, just as an aside, I, I think every person who's involved in any kind of ministry needs to remember verse 12. It is all God's power if anything good happens. Every pastor needs to know you have no power. You're nothing. You're just a voice. God's power is what changes people, not any man or woman. Everyone is leading a Bible study. Everyone is teaching a Sunday school class. If you're trying to read the Bible one-on-one with someone and trying to tell them about Jesus, oh, we've got to remember verse 12. It's Jesus who changes lives, not us. We're simply the conduit through which God works if we'll be submitted to him. And if we won't be submitted to him, God will use something else. It's his work, not ours. But then Peter launches into the sermon. And in this sermon, uh, it's interesting. It's as if the sermon follows the same pattern as the miracle. So the miracle, you know, you have the guy, you have his problem. He can't walk. It's a terrible, hopeless situation, irreversible by any human means. You have, the, you have the problem statement, and then you have the solution. In the name of Jesus, he's healed. God's power operates in a miracle. Well, the same thing in the sermon. The first half of the sermon is the problem statement. As Peter looks at the crowds, and he's like, look, you guys got a problem too. In fact, you got a problem worse than not being able to walk. In fact, if you had to choose between the problem you have and not being able to walk, choose not be able to walk. Because this is a bigger problem that you have. So he's going to lay out a problem statement, and then... The second half of the sermon is the solution, and it's, again, that Jesus can change your life, that there's salvation in Jesus' name. So both the miracle and the message follow pattern solution as a problem. So what, what was the problem that these people had? What was the problem that the crowds had that Peter wants to point out to them? All these crowds are able to run and able to walk, and their legs work fine, but they have a deeper problem. It is that they disowned Jesus. Look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed and disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. That's a remarkable contrast. God glorified Jesus. You disowned Jesus. Even that phrase, God glorified Jesus, isn't that a striking statement? Because in the Bible, who is it that gets glorified? Who are we supposed to glorify? We're supposed to glorify God. But here's God glorifying Jesus. Why would God glorify Jesus? Aren't you only supposed to glorify God? Yes. God was glorifying God. 
God the Father is glorifying God the Son. God the Son is, is serving and honoring and glorifying God the Father. God is glorifying God. God is both the, the one glorifying and the one glorified. That's the mystery of the Trinity. One God, but in multi, three persons glorifying one another. So this Jesus is, is immensely and infinitely important. He, he is the center of the universe. At the, at the center of reality, there is a throne And on the throne is the Father and the Son. Jesus has been glorified. But you, Peter points out, you disowned him. You can't be more on the wrong side of reality than that. That's as wrong as you can be, is to to disown the one whom God has glorified. It doesn't get worse than that. Or look at verse 14. You disowned the, look at this title for Jesus, holy and righteous one, and asked that a murderer be released to you. Now, you guys know that story, you're familiar with the story from the, from the Gospels, where, Jesus, where uh, Jesus was on trial, and there was this other guy, Barabbas, on trial, and Pontius Pilate, the governor, said, look, I can release Jesus to you, or I can release Barabbas, who was kind of, well, he was a murderer, he was a terrorist, he was a really bad guy, an insurgent, an insurrectionist. And, uh, and the people said, no, crucify Jesus, release Barabbas. And so Peter points out the incongruity of that. He's like, Jesus is the holy and righteous one. He's, he's the holy, righteous son of God. He's the one guy ever, ever, who has ever walked planet earth, who always, always did the will of God from beginning to end, without any exception. He's holy and righteous. He's the only one you can look at and say, that is truly a good man. And Peter's like, and that's the guy that you traded for Barabbas? You, know, you, you decided to murder the most innocent man ever in order that a murderer could go free. This right here in verse 14 is the greatest miscarriage of justice that has ever happened. It should be on 60 Minutes every week. They should keep covering this. There should still be investigative reporting on this today. And today we take you back to the greatest miscarriage of justice that has ever been committed in all of human history, that the holy and righteous one would be handed over to be executed. There's never been worse done. And then verse 15, another contrast. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. You know, the reason Jesus can change our lives is because he's the author of life. He's the Lord of life. All life comes from Him. He's God. He created all things. He was with the Father in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created by Him. Jesus is the Word of God. He's the author of life. So how do you respond to the author of life? Well, you killed Him, but God raised Him. And so again, these people find themselves on the opposite side of God. They have come down in the worst possible reaction. They have fallen into the worst, most polarized position from God. And so Peter says, that's how he was healed, verse 6, by faith in the name of Jesus. This man whom you now see was made strong. It is Jesus' name. It's Jesus' name. Not just God in general, not a generic higher power of your identification, not just a spirituality that works for you, but it's, it's not just God even, it's Jesus whom God has raised. 
And you, you punted on him. You, you gave him over. You've got a big, big problem. The center of the universe is now centered on God in Christ. And you have said no to that. And you've disowned that and rejected that. It doesn't get worse. It's the worst thing that could ever be done. And what's striking to me too, and, and this is what is a little disconcerting really, is that who is Peter saying this to? He's saying this to people who are, who are in the temple praying and worshiping God. It's not like Peter went to a supermax facility, a solitary confinement, and found a, a multiple homicide you know, sociopath and is talking to him. <laughs> He's at the temple. You know, like all the people are there because it's the time of prayer and they're there to pray. These are decent, religious, devoted people who believe in God. But he's telling them, you're on the wrong side of God. Because if you don't have Jesus, you can't have God. There is no God without Jesus. Because Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God's self-revelation. You can't have one without the other. Because Jesus is the Son of God who's come and God has vindicated him by healing in his name and raising him up and all of these things. And so it's, it's a rather troubling prospect that it's possible to be decent, law-abiding, church-going, God-believing, non-atheistic, I believe there's a God kind of person. Oh yeah, there's a God, I'm, I'm sure, I believe it. And yet be just as lost as the person who rejects all those things. Because if you don't have Jesus... Well, you don't have the one that God has given. You don't have access to the Father. But there's good news. There's good news for them, and there's good news, thankfully, for us, because we also find ourselves in this predicament. We also find ourselves as people who, who are decent and maybe law-abiding and maybe religious and church-going, maybe even theistic. We believe that there's a God, but, but we don't love Christ we don't trust Him. We don't look to Him for our righteousness and standing before God. We look to ourselves and our own credentials and our education and our open-mindedness and just kind of what decently great people we are. We look to our successes and our accomplishments, but we don't look to Jesus. Fortunately, there's a good word. There's a healing. There's a solution. And that good word is, is in the rest of the sermon here, and it's that Jesus changes lives. And just as He healed and redeemed that, that lame man and changed his life. So now the same healing and redeeming and saving power of Jesus is available to all these crowds that have rejected Jesus. You know, verse 17, Brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. Not in the sense that, that they don't, aren't accountable for what they did, but he's like, look, I, I get it. You, you didn't know. You should have known. You had an opportunity to know, but you didn't. So I'm telling you now, it's time for you to wake up. Verse 18, this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets that his Christ would suffer. God used what you did to accomplish salvation because Jesus died for sinners. So what do we do? How do we access this this salvation that God has in Jesus? How can we have Jesus change our lives? What do I do if I want God to change my life? Well, it's verse 19. He says, repent then. And turn to God. That's it. Repent 
and turn to God. We have to repent. We talked about repent two Sundays ago, but if you weren't here, uh, we, we defined repentance as, this is one way to define it, is changing your mind and saying, I was wrong, God is right. That's repentance. And as I shared two weeks ago, I really hate that. I don't like saying I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong, but it's also pretty much your fault that I'm wrong. Uh, you know, there's reasons I'm wrong. And I wasn't wrong about this or this, maybe that, but understandably. So really, even though I was wrong, it wasn't really that bad. It's kind of everyone else's fault that I'm wrong. But you know, to repent is to say, I'm wrong, period. God is right. You know, I'm wrong about thinking that I'm good enough or spiritual enough. I actually need a savior. I'm wrong, God is right. I, I, I was wrong to make a God out of my work or out of my children or out of my education or out of all the things we make gods out of, my food and my drink. There's only one God and there's only one Savior, Jesus Christ. I was wrong. God is right. And I repent and I turn from that. And, and all of the, the stuff that came out of my life that I justified, you know, my gossip and my temper and my anger and my... Um, addictions and my lust and my need to control everything and my need to fix everything and and keep it all under my power as if I'm a little God who's going to control my whole universe and my selfishness and my pride and my ego, all of that is wrong and God is right. It's very humbling to repent. And then then he says, repent and then turn to God. So say it's wrong, but then look to God and say, God, I need you. I, I am not Good enough. I need you to do a miracle for me as big as causing a lame man to walk. You've got to do it, God. I turn to you. And and don't you find it fascinating that he says to these people, turn to God? I mean, they're at the temple praying. What do you mean turn to God? Do you know where we are, Peter? We're we're praying. I mean, what's more turning to God than going to the temple and praying? But he's like, no, you need to turn to God, all you people who are praying to God. You're not turned to God. What? You're not turned to God. Why not? Because you can't have God without Jesus. You need to turn to God and not trust in your whatever, your religiosity, your, your Jewishness, your Protestantness, your Catholicness. You, you can't trust in your righteousness, or your goodness, or your spirituality. You need the Savior. You need Christ. Oh, and look what happens. If we'll repent and turn to God, Look what, look what happens. Here's how your life gets changed. This is so ridiculously awesome. Verse 19, it, it's amazing. He says in verse 19, repent and turn to God so that, number one, your sins may be wiped out. Don't you love the word wiped out? It's like forgiven except better. Wiped out. Deleted. Expunged. You know, Put the, put the best computer hacker on, onto the computer and he can't find records. It's not anywhere. It's been obliterated. In God's eyes, I, I no longer have a sin record before God because Christ has borne my sin on the cross. My sins are wiped out. It's awesome. All those things gone in God's eyes. And then it goes on. So not only are we forgiven, not only does God uh, expunge our sins, But then, number two, if we repent and turn to God, number two, times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And so as we start to 
follow Jesus, there's a refreshing that happens. God begins to refresh our lives. You know, people often talk about a restart or a a cleanse or, you know, a new beginning. Can we reset? God does that. He, He refreshes the lives of those he forgives. It's not just he forgives my sins, but he begins to change my life. And this refreshment starts to come. You know, and, and instead of being out of control and, and consumed with, with food or drink or substances, he starts to refresh me by pouring self-control into me through his Holy Spirit. Oh, it's so refreshing not to be controlled by other things. And, and he begins to refresh me. He takes all the loneliness and the hostility I have toward others, and, and as he forgives me, he starts to change my heart, and I start to sense that he loves me, and I get put into a church, and I begin to learn what it means to really be in a family. Maybe your family was like a disaster. Here's a family that's in process of being changed and transformed. And he begins to refresh us by, uh, by just showing us that he's in control. And I don't have to try to control everything in my life because I'm afraid. What if something goes wrong? And I can just surrender to the sovereign control of God where it's always been. It's so refreshing. And, and he pours into my life joy where there used to be despair. And he begins to pour into my life all of these things. God is refreshing us. And you know, there's more, there's more refreshing to be had. If you're here this morning, you've been a Christian 50 years. There's more refreshing to be had. There's more God wants to do. You haven't, you haven't exhausted the end of the refreshment that the Holy Spirit can give. And he keeps refreshing. And, and so there's, there's more we have to lean into it and, and keep repenting and turning to God. That's something we have to do every day as Christians. This is a basic Christian discipline. God, I love you, but you know, yesterday, as I think back on it, man, I went back to the old Jeremy, the old responses, the old attitudes, the old reactions. I repent. God, I was wrong, and you're right. Help me today. Refresh me today. Let your Holy Spirit continue to transform me bit by bit. But, of course, we never reach full restoration in this life. And that brings us to the third thing that happens if we repent and turn to God. Number one, our sins are wiped out. Number two, times of refreshing begin to come as as God begins to restore and remake us and heal old wounds and set us free from the, 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 the ways of the world that we'd learned from our parents and from our culture. But then, number three, the best thing of all, Jesus is coming back, and we get him. Verse 20, that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Jesus is coming back, and when he does, we get him. And then, I love it, the restoration of everything. That's what we're looking forward to. When Jesus Christ returns, he will complete everything that he began all sin and all of its consequences and all that sin has done in the world and all the effects of sin will be forever put down. And God's kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom where his glory is on every mind and on every face, a world without sin and its consequences where Christ is all in all, that world is what will be restored to us. Kind of like going back to the Garden of Eden except way, way better even. It's a restoration. And on that day, my friends, you will walk and leap and praise God. 
I believe that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be scenes of holy bedlam as God's saints are enraptured with their salvation. All those prayers you've been praying for God to fix, and he hasn't yet, at that point, whatever prayer remains unanswered will at that point be fully answered. Every prayer for healing, every prayer for restoration, every prayer for deliverance will on that day be fully answered. It will all come to pass for God's people, for those who have Christ. And we will walk and leap and praise God together. I'm so excited for that day. I'm excited for myself. <laughs> I'm excited for you. You know, I, just, I was thinking about us as a church family, those who are part of this congregation. Like, we've, we've been through a lot. We've been through a lot together as a church. We know each other's lives. We've been through lots of aches and pains and hurts. Those of you who've been here a long time, you've watched each other grow old and all of the, the struggles with that. We've seen each other struggle through difficult situations and relationships. Dude, can you imagine the satisfaction on that day when you'll see these people that you've loved and struggled through the Christian life with, finally, no more tears, no more disease, no more death, walking and leaping and praising God. It shall be best day ever. Best day ever. And this is what we hope for when we repent and turn to God through Jesus. You cannot have God without Jesus because he is the Savior. He's the one who makes God possible by dying and rising again for our sins and our salvation. Well, uh, so many more great things to hear, but I need to wrap this up. Let's just jump down to verse 26. I'd love to talk more about the Jesus being the prophet like Moses and Jesus being the, the one whom Abraham promised. But here's the bottom line, verse 26. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. The guy that you had killed has come back to bless. He's come back to bless you. The one that you've rejected for your idols and your sins is now here to bless you, to turn each of you from your wicked ways. Man, if God could bless and forgive those people who were complicit in the actual crucifixion, certainly God could bless us. Certainly there's blessing to be had for everybody. And, and I can't help but wonder if there's anyone here who has never yet experienced the, the life-changing, saving power of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here. You're in church, that's great. You've been plopping down here like that blind man or the lame man who was just, you know, put here in church. Maybe your spouse or your friend, you know, drag you, and there you are plopped down. It's great. You've been listening, you've been hearing. Maybe you've been praying, maybe you believe in God. That's good. But have, has your life been changed through an encounter with Jesus? Have you repented and believed in Christ? You know, it's, it's like Peter standing over that that lame man with his hand extended, except there is extended to us a nail-pierced hand. And, and he's calling you to repent and believe. You know, will you reach up and grab it by faith? What, what about all the kids who are here? And there's kids here in the room. I see some kids. I see some teenagers. 
Your parents have been dragging you here like a lame man, plopping you down in church for weeks and months and years. And they've plopped you down in Sunday school, and they've plopped you down in youth group, and you really had no choice but to go. You might as well have been lame. You had to sit here. And that's great. You've been learning about God. That's great. And, and you're, oh, I get it. Yeah, I understand. I've heard the sermons. I get it. I like it. But have you extended the hand of faith to lay hold of Jesus? Have, have you been changed and forgiven? And is your faith in Christ? Or, or, or are you merely kind of a, a well-churched kid, which is a good foundation, but you need life from Christ himself. You need to trust in Jesus. And what about those of us who know Jesus, who love him? You know, there's more to know. There's further to grow. There's more refreshment to be had. It's as if as we lay in bed in the morning and it's time to get up, there's a hand extended to us from the Savior. Come, walk with me today. Walk with me today. I'll help you. I'll strengthen you. And you know how it is. Those mornings where we're like, I got it. Those days aren't so great. (laughs) Sin usually finds us. Temptation usually overwhelms us. But those days where, where we begin the day taking hold of the hand of Christ and saying, by your power, Jesus, by your power today, I will follow you. God helps. God is real. And he has more to take, teach us and more to show us. No matter how long you've been a Christian, there's more to know of Christ. And so let us all press in, wherever we're at in our walk, wherever we're at in the journey, and see the Lord Jesus and know that he changes and continues to change lives. And we must lay hold of him by faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to praise you this morning for all of the things that your word has told us about you. You are the holy and righteous one. You are the author of life. You are the prophet like Moses. You are the offspring of Abraham through whom the whole world was blessed. You are the risen Messiah. There is power in your name, in the name of Jesus. So, Lord Jesus, we humble ourselves before you. We worship you. And God, we pray that you would give us the grace of faith, that by your grace we would extend the hand of faith and lay hold of you wherever we're at. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would make our eyes, the the, the perception of our heart, to be able to see your glory and your majesty, and that we'd be drawn toward you. Lord, I pray for Christians who who are stuck, who are, are dead, who are stagnant, who are trapped, even, even people who know you, Jesus, may they lay hold of you further. I pray, Lord, for anyone here who doesn't know you, that they would see that there is a Savior and that their hearts would be stirred, God, as they think about you. And so, Lord, meet with us here. We thank you that your word first came to people in a temple who are praying. So here we are, Lord, in a church, and we're praying. We pray that you would meet with us, that you, Jesus, would reveal yourself to us in power and change our lives again. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.